what Spotify did was it started with the assumption that you want music to play immediately. And there's a really crucial difference between pushing play and hearing something two seconds later and pushing play and hearing something play uh, 200 milliseconds later. So Spotify, the company, is obsessed with getting everything to play within 200 milliseconds because it believes that if you get a response from a machine within 200 milliseconds, your brain thinks that you're driving the machine, which means that if you push play on a streaming service and it plays that quickly, then you feel like you own the music. Back up, please. Hello and welcome to IndieCast. My name is Abhishek and joining me from Annapolis after a long, long time is a very familiar name to our regular listeners. That's uh, Brendan Greeley, who during his uh, stint at The Economist has done many things, uh, among which was uh, starting off a blog called Babbage. That's a tech blog which talks about uh, innovations in technology and its social implications. And now he's with Business Week and writes on subjects like music, technology, and the debt crisis. Welcome back, Brendan. Thank you. You make me sound really important. I think the portfolio speaks for itself, doesn't it? Now, you don't have to be modest <laughs> each time you come out on the show, and I'm sure you're proud of yourself. How's the new gig at Business Week now that you're off from a company which did not give you bylines to a company which puts your name out there, Brendan Greeley? I get a lot more mail. I get a lot more mail, and I get mail from, I get mail from crazies. <laughs> I don't know, crazies. It's, I like mail from crazies because it's always nice to sort of talk to somebody who feels like he can change the world. But there are a lot of people out there with um, with conspiracy theories or <laughs> ideas about dramatic changes in Washington and constitutional reform. And when you have your name attached to an article, they email you. But Bloomberg is an interesting company because everything that, that I write runs on the Bloomberg terminal. I'm sure this is something that your listeners know about, but... Uh, most of the traders in the world use Bloomberg Analytics. It's basically it's a machine that's tied into an exclusive network that's got access to every stock and commodities prices in every market in the world and all sorts of other analytics to boot. It's a pretty standard machine for anybody who works in finance. So I get a lot of emails from guys who work at hedge funds, you know, people who work at other kinds of capital management companies and banks and They've all got Bloomberg. They all see my stuff because it goes out over the Bloomberg network as in addition to going in, into the magazine. Those, those emails are interesting because those guys are all really, really smart. <laughs> so they're not the crazies. It's knowing that your work has an impact uh, to a very small audience. My, you know, my father wrote for a magazine called Aviation Week uh, in the 80s. And Aviation Week is the standard for coverage of the aviation industry, uh, both military and civilian. And they used to always say, well, we don't sell the magazine to many people, but we sell them to all the right people. Right. So there's a feeling uh, working for Bloomberg where I, I really get the sense that you sort of what the impact is if you're if you're sort of going out to a limited but influential group of, group of people. That might have been the same case at The Economist, but, um, but, you know, those people didn't know who I am, so they didn't email me. Exactly. And one of the comments, since we are on it, the first article that we are going to talk about is that of Spotify making its debut in the U.S. Before we get there, since we are on the subject of comments, uh, did you read the number of comments that are there below your article? One of them was pretty hilarious, saying that, ho, 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 you guys are so behind. Tomorrow there will be enough capacity to download all the songs in a matter of minutes, so why should we pay Spotify? And then as a reply to that particular comment, there is uh, one guy called TJ Collapse. He writes, dumbass. That's it. That's, that's one word reply. <laughs> to well, I have, so I have two answers for you. The first answer is any journalist who tells you that he doesn't read his comments is lying to you. Ah. 
We all do. This is, I mean, I was with The Economist when they introduced Comment, and, and you know, it's a very high-bound organization. There are people who've been there for decades, and um, there were a lot, of, a lot of grumbling about comments, but let me tell you, everybody there immediately read their comments. It's <laughs> only to laugh at the idiocy, but, every, you know, everybody reads their comments, yeah. um, and everybody follows their tweets. I mean, I sort of, I had to make a note to myself to stop constantly checking to see who had tweeted my article. Your feedback is so weird as a writer. You know, you, right. you sort of, you sit alone forever. If you work in almost any other industry, you know, you get your feedback immediately. You know, you, you close the deal, and all the people you close the deal with say, hey, that was a really good deal. As a writer, you sort of, like, have a relationship with the editor, and then it disappears. And then you kind of hope your mom reads it and says, well, that was a really nice article. Like, but to the, to the substantive part of that comment, so it, it sort of gets to the heart of what the piece is about. So Spotify is a Swedish music streaming service, and the founder of it, Daniel Ek, says all the time, it's his mantra, you have to be better than theft. You have to be better than piracy. You have to be cheaper, better, faster than piracy. So there is a time cost to piracy. Even though the stuff is free, it takes a while to track it down. You have to familiarize yourself with the tools. And even though sort of you and I and probably most of the people listening are familiar with what BitTorrent is, most people aren't. I think it's the other way around, Brendan, in, in India, uh, it would be great if you could explain what Spotify does in less than 30 seconds, because in India, people are more aware about a big torrent, because that's where we get most of our songs from, and uh, not so much about companies like Spotify and uh, Pandora. Interesting. So let's start with piracy. We know what piracy is. Piracy was particularly bad in Sweden for a couple of reasons. Sweden had really good broadband access relatively early. They had some really sort of progressive policies on creating competition in the broadband markets, the speeds they're all used to, particularly in the cities in Sweden, make what's available in America just sound laughable. You know, if you measure speed, cost, and availability, Sweden is second only to Japan. That's one. Two, there's a great tradition in Sweden of hacking. Sweden is so isolated and sparsely populated that you had to share games, for example. You, there weren't game shops in every small town. You couldn't buy them even if you wanted to. So they became really good at cracking the DRM on games and passing them around. So a lot of the fundamental work on BitTorrent was done in Sweden. Ludwig Strigaeus is a Swede. He wrote uh, uTorrent, which is the most popular BitTorrent client. So Sweden was really hit hard by piracy very early and pretty overwhelmingly. The Swedish music industry was doing terribly much earlier than any other music industry. So that was the environment in Sweden when Spotify started. So what Spotify did was it started with the assumption that if you want to make a legal service, it has to be more convenient than piracy. So the challenge that Spotify had starting out was, how do we make something so convenient, so much more convenient than piracy, that we get people to pay for music? There's a time cost to piracy. You have to learn how to use BitTorrent. Uh, again, to your audience, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but it's a really big deal to a lot of people. And you have to find the sites. File-sharing sites come and go. Sometimes they'll be in a country where they'll, they'll be closed down. Often there are nested viruses hidden inside files and file-sharing sites. You download the virus instead of the file, and then you got to deal with that. So there's a sort of time and labor cost that's associated with getting stuff for free. So what Spotify did was it took file-sharing technology and created a music streaming service. This is really important. There are other music streaming services where you just go online and you, you pay a fee and you can listen to what you want. Uh, there's, there's Pandora, which sort of operates like a radio station. There's the new Napster. There are other music streaming services, Rhapsody. There are other music streaming services. What Spotify did was it started with the assumption that 
you want music to play immediately. And there's a really crucial difference between pushing play and hearing something two seconds later and pushing play and hearing something play 200 milliseconds later. So Spotify, the company, is obsessed with getting everything to play within 200 milliseconds because it believes that if you get a response from a machine within 200 milliseconds, your mm-hmm. brain thinks that you're driving the machine, which means that if you push play on a streaming service and it plays that quickly, then you feel like you own the music because it's, it's, the experience is exactly the same as if it's sitting there on your hard drive. The second way is they started from scratch and they went through and got licenses from absolutely every major music company and most of the independent ones as well. So they started out legal from the beginning. They've got a pretty big catalog. It's about 15 million songs. And they used file sharing technology to make it fast. So a lot of the innovations that are part of BitTorrent that allow you to share bandwidth and do things are baked right into the to Spotify's operating system. You have to download a client as a program that sits on your computer instead of a web base. That allows you to cache files locally in AUG format. When you push play on Spotify for a song, so you can search for any song in the 15 million song catalog. That's step one. Step two, you push play. Step three, the first 15 seconds of the song arrives and begins playing. You have mm-hmm. that immediate response. That's coming from a server. Step three, it then looks to see where the closest location is for the rest of the song which might be a server somewhere close, and it might be on somebody else's machine that is nearby. So that's the BitTorrent-like aspect of it. So it's very fast, and fast makes a difference. And one of the reasons why I think Spotify is cool is because it's so fast that it makes you feel like you own the music. Spotify is now second behind iTunes in terms of revenue, not just sort of sales of plays in terms of revenue that it's making for the music industry. The music industry loves Spotify for two reasons. One is it's taking a whole generation of people who used to be pirates and file shares, and it's bringing them back in from the cold. It's finding some small way uh, to guarantee revenue from them. So if you take a huge chunk of people who weren't paying for anything, and now they all pay a little bit, that's a lot of revenue. That's a, that's, a, that's a large amount of money. And companies are happy about the new revenue that's coming in through Spotify. The other thing is they get data that they didn't have before. So because the client's sitting on your hard drive, the music companies they used to have only one point of contact. They would sell you a CD or they would sell you uh, an album on iTunes, and then you disappeared as far as they were concerned. You were gone. All they knew is that, uh, you know, in Annapolis, Maryland in 1992 that I bought a Smashing Pumpkins CD. They didn't know anything else. They didn't know how often I played it, when I stopped playing it, when I sort of uh, got nostalgic and played it again. Now with Spotify, they know who you are, what your age is, what your gender is, and where you are every time you play a song. And that's huge. So, for example, they thought that um, Jay-Z thought he was huge in London. But his manager looked at the Spotify data and realized that he's huge in Manchester. So that's actually affected the way he tours. He goes to Manchester. They do more poster work in Manchester. They've got better store displays in Manchester to to recognize the fact that his fan base is actually uh, 100 miles north of where he thought it was. Right. So they have been successful so far in using the social media and, of course, the, the taste of music that people have. So it's more like a musical equivalent of a Facebook because if that is how people are going to make money, people as in the record companies which have been bleeding so far, then it's only because of this data. So the business model here, help me explain the business model because it seems that they have a huge capital investment in, you said, 15 million songs. That's a lot of songs to be, you know, do they lease it out? Do they purchase it outright from the record companies? No. So, the, so I'll give you two answers. One is, it's more like a Google than a Facebook. Oh. So Daniel Ek, the founder of Spotify, decided from the start that he just wanted it to do one thing. He says that 
The problem that Facebook solves for all of us is it answers the questions, what are my friends doing right now? Right. As complex as Facebook is, that's the simple proposition. Mm. Right? So Spotify solves one problem. What do I want to listen to right now? There's nothing social about it. He didn't try to build a ping-style social network around music. Lots of people have tried to do that. He didn't try to do that. He just wanted the music to play quickly, and he wanted the catalog to be as big as possible. Interestingly, the only thing that's social about it is the same thing that was social about Napster. So he wanted to recreate his first experience with piracy, which was pretty soon when he started using Napster in 2000, he... Uh, he's distressingly young, by the way. He's about your age. Um, <laughs> yes. Is that he noticed when he started using Napster that the best way to find a lot of music was to look for people who had music that he liked and see what else was in their catalogs. Mm. So there's something social, something casually, passively social about looking through other people's catalogs. And so the only social aspect of Spotify is that you find other people through their playlists. People sort of save their playlists, and those are automatically made public. And then you sort of, you can look at what kind of music someone listens to if you happen to like their playlist, and you can grab their whole catalog as well. It's very similar to what was social about Napster. So it's actually pretty clever. It's a, it's a social innovation in a way. It's recognizing a user behavior around Napster and then coding it right into the program that they have. But it's not a network like Facebook. <laughs> you know, and there are plans. We've heard from both companies although nobody will go on the record about it, but there are plans to integrate Spotify very tightly into Facebook because I don't think it makes sense to solve every problem in the world. Uh, and you sort of see a lot of services trying to be a new network. We've got all of our networks. You know, we really do. <laughs> we just have too many of them. We've got too many of them. Like, I haven't joined Google+. Plus. Like, I don't have time for that. Right. So that's, as far as social, it's sort of, in a targeted way, non-social, interestingly. Brendan, I have a difference of opinion there. Is that, in this case, I, as a listener of music, would definitely love to know what a friend of mine listens to, because let's say if I want to listen to something nice right now, and I have a mobile phone with me which has Spotify in it, but I don't know what song to listen to because my taste in music, let's say, is limited, but I do want to listen to some good music. So what I do, I check what my friend listens to generally because he's a good friend of mine and he has a similar taste. So I just hijack his uh, playlist and start playing his songs. Isn't this a significant part of their so-called business idea? Because it's not just about you being allowed to play what you like at any given point of time, but also the liberty to pick and choose at will about what other people are doing because it is it is solving a problem of choice. You don't have to do the hard work of choosing songs. Somebody else is doing for you, and that is Spotify in this case. I, I think we're saying the same thing, actually. So I agree. That is definitely social, and it's yeah. definitely a fundamental part of what they offer. The reason I called it not social is that it's not social in the sense that we think of it. Like, you don't build up your profile. You don't do status right. updates. You know, you don't build friends in that sense. It's sort of... He's not trying to build a new network from scratch. And I think that game is over. One thing that they did do is, you know, there's a Spotify URL that you can send around. And that ended up being very, you know, one of the, one of the early things with blogging that, that uh, newspapers had to realize was the importance of a permalink. You know, that they had these content management systems that didn't produce the same URL for the same article reliably and the URL would disappear. That was a real problem right around 2000. Lots of organizations had to adapt their CMSs so that they would always have the same link in the same place. So Spotify did that for music. And I think that's interesting. The link or the, the URI or the URL, one of the two, will replace the MP3. That's what, that's what Spotify wants. Spotify wants to be able to create a URL that can be sent around that will 
that will predictably, consistently pull up the same piece of music. That ended up being a very social behavior because they made that possible. Then uh, people on Twitter could share Spotify songs. They could say, this is what I'm listening to right now. You can click on that link, and if you had Spotify too, you could hear it. <clears throat> and that was one of the things that made it cool. Spotify is cool. And I wish I could define what cool is. They did this, they're doing the same thing in the U.S. that they did in Europe, which is that on launch, they're giving away a bunch of free invitations to listen to music for six months. And if you get one of those invites, they also give you ten invites of your own. So to become very coveted, and that, you know, by limiting the free memberships, perversely, you, well, not perversely, it's sort of basic economics. By, by limiting something, you raise the price. So by limiting the availability of something, you raise the price in cool of what Spotify is. It's a pretty clever strategy, and they're rolling out the exact same strategy in, uh, in the U.S. as well. And sure enough, because I wrote this article on Spotify, I got emails from a lot of people saying, hey, where's my free Spotify? <laughs> and I didn't have one because I didn't ask for one because it would be unethical of me to steal $60 worth of music because of my connection with Spotify. So, because you put them almost on the front page or a big feature story, if not that. Uh, yeah, you know what? It was supposed to be a cover story, oh. and we got bumped off at the last minute by Rupert Murdoch. Damn him. I would say that that is the least of, of his fins on this earth, that he bumped me off the cover, but I still <laughs> hold it against him. Right. Uh, would I be right if I say that the crackdown on piracy in UK, USA, and these countries has got something to do with the success of Spotify? Uh, because if, if that's yeah. not the case, then it should succeed in a country like India, too. Uh, it is the case. So there are two conflicting points of evidence here. One is a really good study that you should definitely take a look at, done by the Social Sciences Resource Council. The author was Joe Carraganis, and he looked at piracy in emerging markets. And I don't think it got enough attention uh, when it came out. But the basic conclusion was you cannot prevent piracy by ratcheting up enforcement. You can't hunt people into legality. You have to offer them a better service. You know, even pirated goods aren't given away for free, and particularly in China and India and Brazil, they're sold on the sidewalk in physical format. You know, there's a cost of that physical format, which means that there is a market for this stuff. And it's just that music companies are having trouble finding that market. I looked at a couple studies, and there were anecdotal studies, but they were talking to teenagers who picked up Spotify. And the one common theme that emerged was it's simple, it's fast, it's free, and it's legal. And I talked to a couple of teenagers as well who said that, yeah, well, Spotify is legal. And then there's also the uh, European Property Rights Directive. It's called, I don't know exactly what the acronym stands for. It's called IPRED. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's being rolled out country by country. And it's being, and it was rolled out in, in Sweden as well. So there was an interesting dynamic going on there. I talked to one of the music executives uh, who said, I argued for, uh, for us to license Spotify because I thought we really need good laws in Sweden against piracy. But I can't go to the legislators and say, you need to give me better laws against piracy until I also say, well, we've authorized some very good and innovative services. We need something for the kids as well. There are two relationships there. One is what happens to the European Union is that there's a European Union directive, and then every state has to implement it with laws on its own. So right, right around the time Spotify was looking for its licenses, the music industry was looking for a Swedish implementation of this European directive, which means that right at the same time, Daniel Eck was asking for a license, and the music companies were going to Swedish legislators and saying, you've got to write tough laws. And so the music industry realized that if we don't authorize services like Spotify, we're not going to get the laws we want. Right. And I think the timing was perfect because both happened at the same time and that Spotify also gave the users an alternative 
because even in, in India we are facing this problem where the music companies they get a Shahrukh Khan who is a superstar here or an Amitabh Bachchan to go up on the screen and say please don't download or please don't do piracy and please help save the music industry but it's only until that point we still have uh, CDs uh, we have moved over cassettes now we, we still have CDs but uh, it's uh, bit torrents and and stray websites from where you can download stuff we still like to swap mp3s or even in companies all the songs and the movies are stored on the server there is one bloke who brings in all the movies overnight downloads them whether it's documentaries or national geographic or dark knight or any of the latest movies and they put them out you download them within record time because like you said it's fast <laughs> and there is no other legal service which is as fast as just uh, cutting and pasting the songs as as far as india is concerned so far I'll make a prediction, which is that they can get Shah Rukh Khan to go and say whatever he wants about piracy being bad for the industry and, and hurting real people with real jobs. I don't suspect that that'll change unless until uh, until a combination of two things happen. One, good legal services, which don't seem to have arrived in India yet. And two, very public prosecutions. I suspect that the Indian legal system has got better things to do right now than go after teenagers for IT violations. But when that happens, then people will get scared and they'll start to look for legal cheap services. even then there have to be a few companies or a few clones like uh, spotify which could which could get started in india and there are a couple which which are trying really hard but they are facing the hurdles of buying out or not exactly buying out but buying the licenses to these songs from these record companies there is one company called dhingana which has been funded by a couple of uh, american uh, dhingana in, in hindi in marathi means uh, having a great time they are trying to get some funding but they still haven't been able to crack two of the biggest record companies because if you don't have all the repository of content with you then you're not good yeah. so if you if you have only 5 million songs then it's not good you need to have all of the 25 million hindi hindi music right from the 1940s to today so we still have a long way to go so bittorrents will will remain for a while yeah and india is an interesting market because unlike a lot of other markets it's got an overwhelmingly strong domestic music scene. So in places like Germany, you have a niche German language content and local artists. But most of what they listen to is what the big four music companies provide that mm-hmm. comes out of the UK and and the US. In a place like India that's got such a rich tradition of its own music, you know, it's a completely different market and a completely different challenge. I don't think you'll see Spotify there for a while either. But the opposite problem, which is that Spotify has good relationships with global companies, the global, you know, the big four music companies. Relationships with music companies are tricky. The law in this area is impossibly complicated. You know, it's going to take a long time for them to crack all of the domestically held music companies that own the entire tradition of Bollywood songs and all of the various different kinds of songs in different in different languages. So, you may have two solutions. One which is legal in India but only has the foreign catalog and another one that is legal in India and has the domestic catalog. So I think India is an interesting market but also a challenging market for those reasons. Yes, that explains why Daniel Ek did not reply to my tweet when I asked him when are you coming to India. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send him I'll send him an email see if he can't do it for over there. He's yeah. got he's, he's got enough to do right now. I think he's there already in uh, 13 to 15 countries. I don't know the exact number but he's around. Uh, Spotify is in nine countries in Europe, nine markets in Europe and 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 the US. That was about Spotify. Should I move ahead? Do, uh, should, do you think we should be doing the, the US bit as well? What do you suggest? So, totally up to you. You want to talk about the debt ceiling? Yes, very quickly. I mean, what your comments are on what just happened a few days back on August fifth, Standard and Poor downgraded the US debt security from AAA to AA plus, and that was done by 
and Indian American, which is causing some flutter as well. <laughs> what about the immediate position of America there, Brendan? What's happening out there at the ground level? Because you are there. What's the mood of the common man when these things uh, come about? Now, it doesn't require a standard and poor to tell the world that America is not doing too good. Uh, so let's leave that aside for the moment. But how, what's the situation out there uh, at the ground ground level? Oh God, I don't know why. I, I'm a journalist. Why would I know what the common? Why would I know what the mood is? Why would yeah, I know exactly. What? You are the elitist of the fourth estate. Why would you know what the common man thinks, right? <laughs> okay. So here's 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 the way I think you can look at it. It looks like we're having a fight in America about how to close the budget deficit. We are not. We are having a fight in America about the size of government. There's this sort of 30-year experiment in America called Starve the Beast. Republicans used to be for low-budget deficits. They used to be very clear. So Republicans were boring in the, in, the, in the 50s and 60s and 70s. They didn't want to spend a lot. They wanted to do whatever it took to balance the budget. So often, weirdly, Republicans would advocate for higher taxes because for them, it was about being responsible. The guys who are responsible are boring. They're no fun because they don't tell you you can have everything. They tell you that, you know, you can only have this and you can only have it if you're willing to pay for it. The Republicans figured something out in the 80s, particularly with Reagan. Reagan is an interesting figure, I think, in this case, because Reagan agreed to raise taxes. That's something that we forget about. Uh, they came up with a theory called Start of the Peace, which is this, uh, well, two theories that, that ran together. One was, if you lower taxes, then eventually you will have to lower spending as well. Republicans didn't like the size of government. They thought the government sort of took too much in taxes and spent too much in money. But they had a long-term plan for making government smaller, which is that if you starve the government of revenue, if you lower taxes, then eventually there will be a crisis, and you will have to lower spending as well. So the problem now is we've reached that crisis because we don't really have sustainable revenue levels. The Republicans knew in 2001 and 2002 when they passed both rounds of Bush tax cuts, they knew that if they were truthful about the long-term impact of those tax cuts, then they would seem unsustainable. Um, and so what they did was they built what's called a sunset into the tax cuts. So 10 years ago, they said, well, they're not going to have a long-term impact on the budget because we're just going to put the tax cuts on the books for, for 10 years. But everybody knows it's impossible to get rid of a tax cut once you've passed one. Right. So we're looking right now at what at the time they knew was unsustainable. So now the fight we're having is, do the Republicans then make good on their 30-year plan to starve the beast? Lower taxes, lower taxes, lower taxes. We'll deal with spending later. Uh, because it's a very successful electoral strategy. Because you don't have to be the boring old buddy-duddy who says, well, you know, you can't have your program unless you're willing to pay for it. All of a sudden, the Republicans said, you can have the program and you don't have to pay for it. It's magic. We'll fix it later. Was it, was it Ronan Reagan who once said that, uh, read my lips, no new taxes. No, that was Bush. That was George, that was George H. W. Bush. That was George Bush's father. Oh, all right. Um, he was very unpopular because he did a responsible thing, which is that in order to curb budget deficits, both he and Clinton sort mm -hmm. of went through a period of cutting back, trimming back spending, and uh, raising taxes. George Bush raised taxes because it was what you had to do. So the Republicans now they've built an electoral strategy for three years around lowering taxes because it will magically fix everything. Um, and that's turning out to be not true now. So they're desperately fighting for a couple things. One is, if they agree to raise taxes, they've lost their electoral strategy. Their whole elect it's all based around telling you <laughs> that, that you can, if, you know what they are, I, I'm, I've been waiting for a politician to call them this. The Republicans are the have your cake and eat it to your party. So right. now, we've reached the conclusion of starve the beast. They've starved the beast forever. And so now the uh -huh. question is, 
do they get what they always said they wanted, which is uh, making government smaller? Or uh, are they going to have to raise taxes again? America doesn't really want government to be smaller. America wants sort of a sustainable government that, that works over the long term, that provides services, that takes in money. Like, that's kind of what Americans generally want. Americans say they want low, they want smaller government, but that's only because they want their taxes to go down. If you actually ask people what they're willing to spend, sort of the, the one thing that everybody agrees they're willing to spend is foreign aid. And foreign aid is less than 1% of the budget. It's like one-tenth of 1%. It's a really small percentage. So we're not really honest with ourselves about what we're willing to cut. So what we're looking at now is we know how to close the budget deficit. We know how to do it. The CBO, the Congressional Budget Research Office, Congressional Budget Office, I think, mm-hmm. um, looked at sort of what's causing the, the record deficits right now. And there are several factors. One is the expense of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. One is simply that revenues go down during a recession. One is the short-term effects of the $700 billion stimulus that Obama passed. And a huge one is the long-term effects of the Bush tax cuts. There's a formula there. You get rid of the Bush tax cuts, you deal with long-term entitlements, and you balance the budget deficit. So if that were the fight we were having, we know how to do that. But that's not the fight we're having. The fight we're having is about how big government is. And Republicans need right now, the reason they're so intransigent about this, mm-hmm. is that they need to make good on their 30-year promise. They need to make government smaller. If they cave, then the whole thing has been a joke. That doesn't do well for democracy, does it, when the opposition is not strong enough then? Kind of. So I wrote a piece about this, about, about the game theory. of, And I'm not a game theorist. I sort of learned 48 hours worth of game theory <laughs> and wrote about this. But game theorists distinguish between cooperative games and non-cooperative games. So in a cooperative game, somebody is going to enforce the outcome. So if you go into binding arbitration, say, where there's an arbitration judge and there's uh, labor and management, you know that you will have to abide by the outcome. It is the law. Um, And you know that law will be enforced. And so what you're doing within this cooperative negotiation is trying to figure out the fairest allocation of funds. You know there will be an outcome. You know you will have to stick by the outcome. And um, and so there are different strategies. So Obama has been playing a cooperative game. He's been saying we need to close the budget deficit. The problem with Obama is that when he plays a cooperative game, he starts his first offer always in the middle. He, he offers like the stimulus was 40% tax cuts. Republicans have been arguing for tax cuts ever, forever. Right. But the stimulus he gave them, what they now decry as, as useless spending, 40, almost half of it was tax cuts. He started with a compromise and not a single Republican voted for it. They're not interested in the compromises that he's offering. The same with health care. Like, that was not a socialist bill. You've got Obama, again, playing a cooperative game. Like, we're all here. We're going to have to fix the budget deficit. Here's a reasonable offer. The problem is, Washington is not a cooperative game. There's no one to enforce the outcome. So Republicans can choose not to play. Right. And that's what they do. They couldn't say yes. Nothing he gave them could they say yes to. No compromise. Nothing. It was impossible for them to say yes. And the reason it was impossible for them to say yes is not because they believe in lowering taxes. It was because they need to defeat Barack Obama. If they say yes, then all of a sudden, Obama has fixed the budget deficit, and he's not an unreasonable, intransigent socialist, but kind of a reasonable guy, which I think he is, and they've got nothing to run on. Uh. Well, after having listened to you for, and it was a pretty long monologue and a very impressive one, I got a crash course in, in American politics. Forget the common man, but it's a great time to be a journalist there, Brendan, at the moment, to be writing. A- it's, a, it's a great time to be a journalist. I agree with you, absolutely. So I guess on that note, and we had another topic to do, but, I, okay, let's just touch upon what's happening in Greece. A friend of mine was 
traveling there and he said that if you are at a restaurant and if you pay them in cash they offer you desserts because if you pay them by a <laughs> because if you pay them by a credit card they say dude if you have cash please pay us cash because the bank doesn't pay us in time and we won't be having this business tomorrow so you won't you will not be able to come here to eat this food tomorrow so please pay us in cash and he gets and he is from india and he was he said i guess what's happening in greece now is really bad as compared to what it was in india back when you were you were being liberalized oh god yeah <laughs> well i don't know anything about that but that sounds terrifying and then i think we will end on this note and there is another incident that he told me that if let's say i hire a carpenter then the carpenter will insist on me paying a post dated check and i pay him a post dated check of a date which is 2 months away from now he goes to the bank and discounts it and gets 90% of that money and then i have to pay the bank 2 months later but the funny story is that i don't i don't pay at the end of the day so banks are not doing too well but you know in other words it's it's reminiscent <laughs> Yeah. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. The Greeks should run the world. They're so creative. That's, you know what that is? That's, that's Jugad. <laughs> that's Jugad. Exactly. Man, you got it right. That is Jugad. And that's there is another... <laughs> that is Jugad, yes. And there is another word in Hindi which I think no journalist has dared put in in the, in the text. It's called Jhol. Now, Jhol means conning somebody into doing what you feel is right without causing enough harm to that person. So it's they're doing jhol plus jugad which is a, a, a very deadly combination <laughs> but i don't think it's going to work for, for <laughs> in the long run i think that's what america well, needs a little bit of jhol <laughs> maybe a little i'll i'll, I'll i'm going to look into that <laughs> to talk to you as always yes great thanks a lot brendan for your time and uh, uh, when is your next cover coming up because we're going to talk again soon hopefully <laughs> Oh god, I'll I'll let you know. I've got I've got sort of six features coming in. I'm working uh, you know, I won't even bore you with what I'm doing. I'll, I'll let you know. Yes, and we will talk again. Thanks a lot again and all you folks listening out there, you can get this podcast on theindicast.com and leave your comments there because we read them like Brendan just said, we will definitely read them. Thanks again, Brendan. Thanks, Abhishek.